Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. Talk to the road. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams, he's still coming time with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a one-way bottom little Cherub of face, cherub of face little boy who would do it, whose life would be. I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, Especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Robert Spangler loved hiking in the Grand Canyon. He also loved being married. What he didn't like was the pesky financial burden of divorce. After the 1990 death of his third wife Donna whilst hiking in the Grand Canyon, investigators were alarmed to discover his wives often came to grisly ends that were never anything to do with him. Or were they? In 1972 in Melbourne, Australia, two unemployed plasterers decided to kidnap school children for ransom. Was this a stupid idea? It certainly was. <laughs> Would they learn their lesson? Probably not. Is the next question rhetorical? Yes, it is. <laughs> Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Zaraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to loads of other episodes, including our brilliant early stuff. It is so good, we don't want almost anyone to hear it. That's right. <laughs> and levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. All right, Tara. What's the word, Big Bird? Let's get murdery. <laughs> On a sunny day on April 9th, 1993, 57-year-old Robert Spangler and his wife, 58-year-old Donna, put on their sporty hiking jorts and set out on a camping trip in the Grand Canyon. Robert had married his third wife, Donna Sundling, in 1990, and the two moved to Durango, Colorado. Donna was an aerobics instructor with five adult children and many grandchildren from an earlier marriage. She had a deathly fear of heights that meant she didn't share Robert's love of hiking in high places. 
But the couple had been having a lot of problems in their marriage and Donna was willing to suck it up and go on the trip in an effort to improve things with her husband. Oh, good on you, Donna. Well, that'll make things work out, right? With backpacks and camping gear, the fit couple set out hiking on the Page Spring Trail. Two days later, Robert hiked out alone. He headed straight to the ranger's office and tearfully told the rangers about a terrible tragedy that had happened on the trail. He explained that while hiking through a particularly picturesque area, they'd stopped to take a picture of the roadrunner and coyote trying to drop anvils on each other. What? No. (laughs) That's not true. Yeah, no, it's not. It's just that like a lot of my knowledge about the Grand Canyon comes from roadrunner cartoons. Oh, that's factual. Well, yeah, no. That all happened. It's a documentary shot in real time. It is. Robert claimed that he turned away to set up the camera and when he looked back, his wife was gone. He said he slowly climbed down the steep cliff she'd been standing on and found Donna dead at the bottom of it after suffering an accidental fall. He said that she'd been complaining of dizziness shortly beforehand. Robert seemed very sincere and upset while recounting this tale of tragedy to the rangers. When he reached Donna's body, Robert had said that he took a cloth and wiped dirt and blood off her face and sat with her for a while. Then he hiked out to get the authorities. Rangers immediately went to the area and discovered Donna's body, approximately 160 feet below the trail. Deputies hiked down to where she'd fallen, looking for clues that would support or discredit Robert's tale, but they didn't find either. All they had to go on was Robert's version of events, and he stuck to his story. The autopsy report on Donna Spangler concluded that she'd sustained massive injuries, including abrasions, contusions and multiple fractures of the neck, chest and lower limbs. There was no evidence to suggest foul play or that Donna's fall was anything but an accident. Within a week, the case was closed as an accidental death. Robert, the grief-stricken widower, seemed to bask in the attention after his wife's death. He did interviews on national TV shows about losing Donna and the dangers of hiking in the Grand Canyon. Despite this, he continued to hike in the Grand Canyon with a many a girlfriend in the coming years. Mm. I reckon he was having a bit of Grand Canyon sex. Ah. Mm. (laughs) Ah, Grand Canyon sex. Yep. I bet it's a thing. Google it, Barney. After enjoying his bachelor status for a while, Robert got back together with his second wife, Sharon Cooper, and she moved into the Colorado home he'd shared with Donna. A year after Donna's death, Coco Nino detective Bruce Cornish learned of a curious coincidence in Robert's past. He said, A friend of Donna's family called our agency and was suspicious of the death, and he had told us that there had been a previous wife who had died under suspicious circumstances. In light of this information, Detective Cornish began a new investigation. Robert Spangler was raised in Ames, Iowa, where he met his first wife, Nancy. The high school sweethearts married in 1955 and moved to Littleton, Colorado. Their son, David, was born in 1961, followed by their daughter, Susan, in 1963. Robert had pursued a variety of careers throughout the years, working as a public relations director for a non-profit organisation and as a part-time disc jockey at a country radio station. The latter turned him into a bit of a local celebrity, which he enjoyed. His show was quite popular, despite one person's criticism that he sounded way too chirpy early in the morning. Well, top of the morning to you. Here's some icky breaky heart to get you going. Yeah, see, that's a red flag, don't you think? Yeah, I think it is, Mm. yeah. That's country music, right? Yeah, yeah. 
1978, Robert was working for the American Waterworks Company and keeping his yearning for the spotlight alive by starring in amateur cabaret dinner theatre productions in Grand Junction. Well, tell me about that. Uh, That's what I'm interested in. Yeah, that's what I was interested in too. Uh, I heard he got rave reviews for his role in Backdraft, the musical. Unfortunately, it didn't result in sold-out shows as the theatre burnt down on opening night. Uh, Is that completely true? Not completely, no. (laughs) On the morning of December 30th, 1978, deputies from the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office responded to the scene of a possible double homicide and suicide at 7614 Franklin Way. A neighbour had discovered the dead bodies of 45-year-old Nancy Spangler, her 17-year-old son David and her 15-year-old daughter Susan. All three had suffered gunshot wounds from a 38 caliber handgun. Susan's body was found partially clothed in her bed with a bullet wound in her chest. Across the hall, David, who was also in bed, had been shot once in his upper chest. Investigators searched the house and found Nancy in a chair in the basement, slumped over a typewriter with a gunshot wound to the forehead. There was a suicide note sitting on the typewriter in front of her that was signed with her initial N. Now, whenever a suicide note is typed... Yeah, it's a little bit suspicious, isn't it? And uh, uh, the shooting yourself in the forehead, that's an odd way to shoot yourself. Really? That's not how you do it? Oh, yeah, no. Okay. You put it in your ass or uh, (laughs) or up in your ear or something, don't you? I think people go with the whole like temple thing. Oh, yeah, that's something, yeah. Back. Back to the ear. I guess they don't put it up their ass, do they? Uh, No, not, not. Well, I mean, yeah, it could miss all your vital organs and still really mess you up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. It's pretty risky. I mean, you know what? People who live by the seat of their pants might do it that way. (laughs) Oh, I see what you did there. Ah, ass jokes. (laughs) Tara, ass jokes, Saravan. Five hours later, Robert arrived home from work. He said he and Nancy were having problems, though he didn't mention that they may have been caused by an affair he was having with a co-worker. He told authorities he'd been arguing with his wife the night before and the next morning the argument continued, culminating in him telling Nancy that he was leaving her and moving out. Robert theorised this might have been what pushed his wife to kill herself and their children. Detectives interviewed Robert at length but couldn't find enough evidence to prove that he was involved. On January 3rd, 1979, the Arapahoe County coroner closed the case, finding that Nancy had died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound after murdering both of her children. This meant that Robert was free to marry his lover, co-worker Sharon Cooper, which he did seven months after his family's deaths. Ooh, that's cold. Mm. Get this. After the marriage, Sharon moved into the house where his family had died, I mean, that's a comforting environment for a fresh start with the woman you'd been cheating on your wife with, don't you think? Mm, they say romance is dead. But they're wrong. Uh, no, they're right. They're right. Robert and Sharon had a lot in common, and they both loved hiking in the Grand Canyon. Sharon loved it so much, she even wrote a book about it called... Canyon On- Sex and Why I Love It. <laughs> <laughs> Put it in my canyon, baby. Um, well, it... <laughs> Uh, yeah, Sharon, Sharon, the book Sharon wrote about it had a very catchy title. It was called On Foot in the Grand Canyon, Hiking the Trails of the South Rim. And that book is available on Amazon. 
Now, she actually dedicated the book to her soulmate, Robert Spangler. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately for people who love books about hiking and love, their happiness came to an end and the couple got divorced in 1988. After Donna's death in the Grand Canyon in 1993, Robert and his second wife Sharon got back together. But it didn't go that well and Sharon had actually told people that she was starting to believe that Robert was out to get her. Ooh. On October 2nd, 1994, Sharon died at the age of 52 from a drug overdose. This death was considered either suicide or an accident and was not investigated by law enforcement. Sixteen years later, this information did not sit well with Detective Cornish, who was the man investigating Donna's death. Ooh. He said, Upon reading that report, I became highly suspicious that Robert may have had a role in Donna's death. And if Robert Spangler killed his first family in 1978, he would certainly have the capacity to kill his wife in 1993 and 1994. Detective Cornish did not make pasties and shared these suspicions with Arapahoe County Detective Goodwin, who decided to take a fresh look at the case of the Spangler family murders. Goodwin put in a call to the original investigator, Marvin Tucker, who told him he never bought into the coroner's original finding of suicide. Tucker said, I told him that myself and the lieutenant I was working with felt that very strongly and we wanted to get the case prosecuted at the time, but we could never do so. Tucker said that he was never satisfied that it had been cleared as a double murder-suicide. He stated that it should at the very least have remained an open case. Detective Goodwin decided to do some good old-fashioned police work and review the original evidence, starting with the suicide note and typewriter. He found it highly suspicious that the typewriter had been wiped clean of prints and the suicide note didn't have any fingerprints on it either. It's not like Nancy was wearing gloves when they found her body. And what would even the point be? You know, like, what's she going to pretend that she didn't do it? She might have just got a manicure. Yeah, that wouldn't make you wear gloves. That would make you not wear gloves. Oh, yeah. Come on! (laughs) (laughs) Thinking the coroner's findings were bullshit, Detective Goodwin asked the current Arapahoe County coroner, Dr. Doberson, to take a new look at Nancy Spangler's autopsy photos. The coroner noticed that the gunshot wound on her forehead was surrounded by stippling, which are little dot-like scratches. The stippling pattern was his first indication that something wasn't right. Dr. Doberson explained, When a gun is fired, there's a lot more that comes out of the end than just the bullet. Some portions of unburned gunpowder come out, and it's these portions of unburned gunpowder that impact the skin and form an actual injury. It's these injuries that are characteristic of an intermediate range wound. So an intermediate range wound would have meant that the gun that killed Nancy was held at a distance of between 3 to 10 inches from her head. Okay, so it wasn't right up against her skin. Yes. Okay. It's starting to stink, isn't it? Yep. It always stinks. Doberson added, This would be a very difficult way for a person who is committed to ending their life to hold the gun. That is, to hold it from such a distance that the possibility of missing is much greater than if the gun was in contact with the skin. The most likely scenario in a situation like this is that another individual fired the gun. Damn straight, Dr. Doberson. Dr. Doberson concluded that Nancy was murdered and changed her official cause of death from suicide to homicide. Detective Goodwin took the case to the prosecutor, who agreed there was something very fishy there, but said that they didn't have the evidence to go forward with a prosecution. Determined Detective Goodwin refused to let this be the end of the case. 
He got together with investigators from the US Department of Interior, National Park Service and counties of Coconino, Arizona and Arapaho and they linked the cold case homicides in their respective jurisdictions. They then met with agents from the FBI and requested assistance. The FBI had the jurisdiction to investigate all the potential murders together. They decided to reach out to Robert's family and friends, hoping to find an angle to use to make him talk. In August 2000, they got what they wanted. Canyon sex? <laughs> oh, the red sand. A family friend told cold case detectives that Robert had under a year left to live. He'd sent her a letter telling her that he had terminal lung and brain cancer. He said he had begun noticing symptoms of his cancer in July as he was losing coordination, his eyesight was deteriorating and he was finding it difficult to memorise his lines for the cabaret production of Neil Simon's The Odd Couple. I did not make that up. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Oh. I bet he was playing Felix, the fastidious news writer. Or I don't know, maybe he was playing the couch in their apartment. Yeah, maybe. I think Jack Klugman uh, did it very well in the TV series. <laughs> but you're Jack Klugman. The authorities made a decision that the fact Robert was still reeling a bit from this diagnosis might make this the best time to approach him. Because of the lack of existing evidence, it was crucial for the prosecution to get a complete confession. The FBI went to Grand Junction to try and talk to Robert. Investigators approached him at home and he agreed to an interview at the local sheriff's office. In early 2001, detectives sat down with Robert Spangler. Their strategy was to make him feel important by playing to his ego. They told him that a whole team of FBI profilers were interested in studying him. Agent Leonard Johns said, I told him I would love to talk to him and I was fascinated by his mind. And that was all the truth. But don't mistake that for me liking him at all. But somebody who can get away with homicide for that many years is a very intelligent person and I can learn a lot of things from him. Still, they laid it on really thick. For nearly three hours, Robert sat and listened to their pitch as they told him how interesting and unique he was. Although reveling in the interest they had in him, he kept saying that he had nothing he could tell them. Investigators confronted him with the murders of his wife and children, the drug overdose of his second wife, and the death of his third wife in the Grand Canyon. Robert told investigators, well, you're naming one too many, remember? Eventually, he said he was tired and wanted to leave. They were desperate to arrest him, but didn't have enough evidence to do that, so they told him that they really wanted to talk to him the next day. Robert left, saying he would get in touch with investigators in the morning if he wanted to continue the interview. The investigation team was deflated as they felt like he'd slipped through their fingers. Slippery sucker. Slipped through their fingers like so much red sand. <laughs> During canyon sex. Mm. In a move that shocked everyone, at 9am the next morning, Robert phoned the FBI and made an appointment to continue the interview. On some level, there was a part of him that wanted to brag about it. He said he might be willing to talk about his family's deaths, but he wanted to know what they could offer him in return. Investigators agreed to Robert's request for time to see his friends and to visit the Grand Bloody Canyon one last time. In exchange, he started singing like a bird and giving them details of how he murdered his family. He started by saying, This was premeditated, first of all, so there's that. 
When they asked him how he convinced Nancy to come downstairs, he said, a surprise to go along with Christmas. Come here, sit quietly, close your eyes. Then he got the gun from wherever it was and put it near her head and shot her. He said he walked upstairs to his daughter Susan's bedroom where she was asleep in bed and shot her through the chest. He then walked across the hall to his son David's room, but the 17-year-old had woken up. Robert fired at his son from the bedroom doorway, saying, It was absolutely not a fatal wound at all, and I wound up smothering him. Ooh, that's cold. Oh, yeah. You feeling chills? Yeah, I am. Authorities were amazed that he was talking about murdering his wife and kids in such an unemotional, matter-of-fact way, like he was talking about an egg sandwich. With this chillingly calm demeanour, he explained why he murdered them. He said he'd fallen in love with Sharon Cooper and slaughtering his family would be easier for him financially than getting a divorce. Maybe trying to get a good lawyer would have been a place to Yeah, getting a divorce isn't that hard. Yeah, I mean, people do it all the time. I think I'd find it easier to get a divorce. Than to kill your own children, Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I, um... I agree. Robert vehemently denied any involvement in the overdose death of his second wife, Sharon, and refused to discuss Donna's death as he was scared her children might build a civil suit against him. So he's on death's door, and he's still a stingy bastard. Like, just give them all the money and assets Donna left you. I mean, are you really planning on taking them all with you to hell? I don't think the US dollar is even a currency in hell. I think it's bollars. Yeah, bollars. That's where bollars yeah, actually not, is worth something. I mean, well, not much. Not much, but yeah, mm. something. Though thrilled to have got this information out of him, Agent Johns looked disappointedly at Robert and told him that he was not a serial killer unless he'd murdered on more than one occasion. Then Agent Johns started packing up his things. Robert didn't like that. He wanted to be considered a serial killer and found fascinating by the FBI profilers. Oh, who doesn't? Yeah, he wanted to be the prettiest girl at the FBI profiler dance. He said, I am interested in talking to your profilers to find out why or how I am capable of compartmentalising something and doing something like that that most people, I have every confidence, are incapable of. I'm different. I am interesting. I'm not your normal, average, everyday person. He ended up saying, okay, you've got your serial, and told them to continue with their line of questioning. As in serial killer, not, you know, cornflakes and shit. Mm. Mm-hmm. Ego. There you they go. got him in an ego trap. I like it. I like it a lot. So this is when he admitted to murdering Donna in the Grand Canyon. He said he took her up a path to an exposed place, saying, so I'm sure it must have been a a mental process of deciding now or never. She was not a big woman, so she was no match for me. Without saying anything to her, he went up to her and shoved her backwards over the cliff while she faced him. Again, he said his motive was that it would be easier than divorce. (sighs) So he actually looked her in the eye and pushed her in the chest off the cliff. Yeah, she was like standing there facing him and he just went up to her and shoved her over the edge. Oh, that's icy. It's so cold. Like, you know, get a divorce, dickhead. I thought he might have like just said, I'm going to take your photo. Can you take one step back? Take um, another step back? Uh, one more step back? And then, ah! Oh, I thought it might have been like that. An but anvil looking fell her, on her head. An anvil fell on her head. Uh, but looking her in the eye while he did it. Wow. Yeah, I uh, just shoved her off the edge. Wow. Two divorce for me. 
So he showed no remorse in either of his confessions and continued to deny any involvement in Sharon's death. <clears throat> People get divorced all the time, eh? Like yeah. it's not, I mean, it's not fun, but it's not that hard. No, it's not. Authorities felt really good to be able to tell Nancy's family 22 years later that she hadn't killed her children and herself. I mean, they'd been told that this is what happened. That's right. 22 years. Some of her relatives would have died thinking that she'd done that. Yeah, that's awful. It's despicable. Mm. Robert's new wife, Judy, was apparently quite surprised by the confession. You got lucky, Judy. You got real lucky. Yeah, she got away. He didn't bore of her. No, Mm. he didn't manage to bump her off. So three weeks after giving his confession, Robert was taken into custody. So, you know, he'd said goodbye to his friends and he'd gone for another hike in the Grand Canyon. He pled guilty in federal district court to the murders of his third wife and his first wife and two children. He was sentenced to life without parole in federal prison. A matter of months later, Robert Spangler died in prison on August 5th, 2001 at the age of 68, before he'd had a chance to perform his interpretive dance rendition of the Shawshank Redemption. Well, that would have been great. It was going to be um, magnificent. So he's in, how long was he in jail, did you say? Oh, it was only a matter of months. matter of months. Yeah, not oh, even well. six months. That's, hopefully it was unpleasant for him. Well, yeah, like, you know what? It pretty much never happens because it's random as hell. But this time, cancer got it right. I don't know. I would have liked to, for him to have spent a lot of time in jail. Yeah, with cancer. Longer. Yeah. And no interpretive dance, no cabaret. Yeah, I'm not sure if hell is real. Or if hell is real, it's on earth. Um, <laughs> We're there now. Uh, yeah. So I would have liked to have seen him live a bit longer to enjoy his jail sentence. Yes. Or not enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, either way, at least some, some, you know, the, the dust, the red dust was cleared and uh, people were able to find out the truth. Well, there's no canyon sex in prison. There isn't. You know what? Um, Donna's family actually, I don't know how they managed to do it so quickly, but they sued him. Oh, good and they got, they got money off him before he died. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I was pretty impressed by that. Oh, yeah. wow, what a story. I know. They got him in the end. That's yeah. some good police work there. Yeah, yeah. I, I like how uh, dogged and determined they were and how yeah, when they got to the FBI, they were able to sort of link mm. it all together in ways that the different jurisdictions couldn't. Cornish pasty. He was, he was, he was the bomb. Yeah. That was, that was a really good detective pasty. Yes, lots of peas. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Okay, Barney, it's time for you to get murdery. Edwin John Eastwood met fellow plasterer Robert Clyde Boland in 1972 on a building site in Melbourne. But within a week of meeting, both were out of a job. 21-year-old Edwin was easily led and was chaperoned into a life of petty crime by the older Boland. In the month after they both got canned, they robbed two railway stations and a restaurant with a sawn-off twenty-two rifle. Edwin Eastwood loved Clint Eastwood and especially his film Dirty Harry. Is that why his name's Eastwood? Did he change it? No, he didn't. Okay. No, but who doesn't like Clint Eastwood films? 
Probably Clint Eastwood. Oh, no, I think he, he thinks they're pretty he, good. He digs them? Yeah, I think so. It gave Edwin an idea for a bold and high-risk crime involving the kidnapping of schoolchildren for ransom. He figured one big score and he could retire from crime. Bolin liked this idea. They cruised around the Victorian countryside looking for a vacant house, but then Edwin got it into his stupid head the idea for an underground hat. An underground hat? Sorry. Um... <laughs> <laughs> what are they going to do with that? Edwin got it into his stupid head, the idea for an underground hut. Oh. That makes much more sense, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. When they found a spot, they came back with shovels and dug a trench. Then they covered it with logs and sheets of galvanised iron and then covered it with dirt. But it didn't work, Tara. No? When it later rained, the roof sagged and the bottom of the hut was awash with mud. Wait, look, two professional plasterers couldn't predict that this would happen. No, that's probably why they're out of work. Oh, okay. Yes. So the underground hut was abandoned in favour of a van. An underground van? And un- the underground hat was <laughs> was abandoned in, in favour of an above-ground hat. Oh, well, that makes so much more sense. So, yeah, a van is probably a better idea. Yeah, makes sense. Bolin used his former boss's name and purchased an old red bread van with cash. Sneaky. But just as everything was starting to fall into place, a police officer nearly foiled their dastardly plot a week before it was to take place. Edwin had pulled his car over by the side of the highway for a nap. Snoring away after a big night on the piss, he was rudely awoken by a copper knocking on his window, demanding to search his car. What the bloody hell is this then? (laughs) That's right. There was a sawn-off rifle in the back of the car, but there were also dozens of empty beer cans and rubbish, as well as a shovel and various plastering tools. That sounds like Kelly's car. (laughs) It does sound like Kelly's (laughs) car. Except there wouldn't be alcohol bottles. It would be just like non-alcoholic beverage everywhere. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And a twenty-two. The policeman didn't see the gun amongst all the crap. That was a close call. Oh. On October 6th, 1972, Edwin and Boland drove a beat-up red bread van north up the Calder Highway towards Bendigo in central Victoria. On the way, they were waved down by an elderly gent who got bogged on the side of the highway. Edwin and Boland pulled over and helped push his car out of the mud. What good blokes! Yeah, top fellas! All antsy and impatient, the pair were relieved when they finally arrived at the tiny building made from local granite in 1869, Faraday Primary School. Edwin pulled a balaclava over his head and grabbed his rifle. Boland's brilliant disguise consisted of a green floppy hat and some dark sunglasses. Oh, no one will ever recognise him. After kicking in the door of the single-room building and pointing the rifle at terrified teacher Mary Gibbs, Edwin said, School's over for today, kids. Oh, sick burn. He must have got the Arnold Schwarzenegger writers in. The Arnie writers, there were two of them, and every time he was going to do a movie, they'd read, they'd do another draft of it, putting in all of his, like, consider that a divorce kind of line. <laughs> nice to see you. I get your ass to Mars. It's not a tumor. Yeah, Arnie mm. writers. Mm. Well, I wonder how much time he spent devising that stupefying witticism. Oh, this guy? Months. Possibly the entire one-hour drive there. (laughs) Anyway, the children, six little girls aged between 5 and 11, were playing musical chairs. They ignored Edwin and Boland, so when the teacher killed the music, the kids scrambled for a chair. (laughs) 20-year-old Mary Gibbs and her six pupils were then forced into the red delivery van. Fortunately, another four children were away sick or wagging that day. Wow, that's like half half the school. Yeah, maybe there was a bug going around. Yeah, probably. Kids. Jamie little things. Yeah, they are Jamie little things. Panic set in when parents came to pick up their children from the tiny school building and found it empty. 
Uh, did they check the underground hat? There's probably a few hurrahs too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, kids. You gotta love them. Mary Gibbs Holden Tirana was still parked out the front. About 4.40pm, a Melbourne newspaper took a call from one of the kidnappers. I'll say this only once. I've kidnapped all the pupils and the teacher of the Faraday State School. The ransom is $1 million. Look for a note in one of the front desks. Then the caller hung up. Edwin and Boland had left a note at the school. I don't know why they didn't use the blackboard. Wasted opportunity, I say. Yeah, they could have made it bold and proud. Would you like to know what the note said? (laughs) Ransom will be $1 million. $500,000 $500,000 notes in three suitcases and $500,000 notes in six suitcases. Oh, I think this was all just a ploy to get a whole bunch of suitcases. Well, that's nine suitcases <laughs> yeah. in total. All currency must have been in circulation for at least 12 months. As if they'd know the difference. It went on to read, Pick up details as follows. At 7.25pm, we will contact Lindsay Thompson at Russell Street Police Headquarters and make arrangements with him. Though that's a little bit unusual because Lindsay Thompson was the Minister for Education at the time. Oh, okay. They did some research, I guess. I guess. Maybe they had uh, an axe to grind with Lindsay. Well, don't we all? No, he's he's a nice bloke. It went on to say, We are not going to waste anyone's time by making idle threats, so we will cut it short by saying that any attempt to trace us or apprehend us will result in annihilation of every hostage. Edwin and Bolin then drove off into a remote area in the bush with the hostages. On the way, Edwin had to take money from Mary Gibbs for petrol. <laughs> what? No, no, you're all going to have to put in for uh, petrol. Come cash, on. Ca- cash, gas or grass? At a secluded dead-end track in the bush, which they called their hideout, Mary and the girls were locked in the van and guarded by Bolan. Edward then drove his car to a nearby town, which had a phone booth to organise the ransom. Would the brazen kidnappers succeed, Tara? Uh, probably not. Would the hostages come out of it alive? I certainly hope so. After making the call, Edwin returned to the van to find Bolan surly and bored. <laughs> like you are now. Yeah. <laughs> what? What are you talking about, man? He wanted, well, Boland wanted to be driven home to build up an alibi. Edward gave in and drove him home, leaving Mary and the girls locked in the van. Meanwhile, the kidnapping had become front page news and there was a public outcry. What'd somebody think of the children? That evening, the Premier of Victoria, Dick Hammer... Oh, really? Uh, Dick Hamer. Uh. Sorry. <laughs> Apologies to the <laughs> Hamer family, um, the Dick Hammering family. Yeah, they, 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 they listen all the time. Announced that the state government was indeed prepared to pay the ransom. The Victorian Education Minister, Lindsay Thompson, who himself was a former school teacher, was driven to the scene by Assistant Commissioner Bill Crowley. Brilliantly disguised as a minister's driver with a green floppy hat and sunglasses. (laughs) He was not. No, he wasn't. I don't know actually what he was wearing. But, Tara, I do know what was in his pants. Oh. Bill Crowley was armed with a trousered Derringer pistol. Oh, like the one I have. Yeah, well, but real. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's different. Another cop, Mick Miller, was concealed under a blanket in the rear of the car with a high-powered rifle. Covered in suitcases. They all waited patiently to deliver the ransom, but it was not to be. At 5am in the pre-dawn chill, Thompson waited in a suit and an overcoat with the suitcases containing $1 million. The quiet was almost unnerving and the pre-dawn darkness made it all quite eerie, he later told media. Oh, it's quite poetic, isn't he? Not quite sure what to expect. I kept going through a plan of action in case the kidnappers tried to grab me. I felt like the loneliest man in the world. 
like my day. <laughs> no. Three minutes later, an old Holden Ute appeared in the desolate main street. He drove up a short way, turned and drove back, still slow, still staring directly at me, Thompson said. It disappeared for a moment, then returned. The driver parked and a young man staggered over towards Thompson, who was bracing for the worst, and blurted out, What in the fuck do you think you're doing wandering around here at five in the morning? The startled man said he was looking for a mate he'd lost while the pair were drinking. And driving, by the sounds of things. Well, it was the 70s. Police grabbed him and Thompson's wait resumed. As dawn broke, they decided to leave. Fearing a trap, Edwin and Boland had chickened out. Meanwhile, teacher Mary Gibbs had managed to kick the van's door panel out with her heavy, platformed-heeled leather boots and escape with the children in the dark, finding help a few kilometres away. Go, Mary! Mary told newspapers at the time, When they didn't come back before dawn, I thought it's now or never and began kicking at the door. I don't think we could have got out without the boots. It was fantastic. I crawled out and the girls followed and I was petrified the men would come back and catch us. Robin Howarth, one of Mary's pupils, who was only 11 at the time, uh, she told media, I was scared they were going to kill us for nothing. They said they had nothing to gain from killing us and nothing to lose either. Oh, how terrifying for all those kids. Yeah. And Mary, feeling yeah, yeah. responsible for uh, all of yeah. them. Yeah, I bet Mary kept them all together, though. Maybe uh, they had a little, maybe they sang a few songs or something. Yeah. I don't know. I hope, well, probably. Hmm. She'd have to do something to keep them, you know, amused and not freaking out. That's right. Edward and Bolin were captured the following Monday by heavily armed Victoria police officers after an extensive manhunt. They were hiding in their underground hat. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's the first place they should always look. Yeah, well, that's right. Edwin pleaded guilty to seven counts of kidnapping in December 1972 and was sentenced to 15 years in the clink. Oh, God! <laughs> Not the Colonel clink, like jail, prison. <laughs> A week later, he gave evidence in the trial of Bolin, who pleaded not guilty. Edwin objected to taking the oath on the Bible and told the jury his record of interview with the police had been fabricated. Edwin told the jury that contrary to what he had told police, Bolin was not his accomplice. Instead, he named David O'Ryan as his co-offender, a gingerhead man nicknamed Megzi, who lived... Oh, in a letterbox under the sea? Well, a South Yarra boarding house, but the same thing, yeah. <laughs> under the sea. Under the sea, In yeah. an undergrounded hat. <laughs> That's right. But the teacher, Mary Gibbs, positively identified Bolin as one of the men who had taken her. Uh, but first he had to put on a, a green hat and some sunglasses. That's right. And she a was green, like, oh, that's him. A uh, green floppy hat. Yeah. yeah. No, when it was a stiff hat, she's like, I don't know, man. I don't yeah, know. no. An underground hat. Well, that's a different uh, thing altogether. He was definitely wearing one of those. Bolin was convicted by a jury in March 1974 after three trials and was sentenced to 17 years imprisonment because he was apparently the ringleader because he was older. Yeah, yeah. And the oh. other guy, I mean, Eastwood, he sounds a bit dim. No, Edwin, it was his idea. Yeah, exactly. That's what makes me think he's dim. On January 22, 1973, Mary Gibbs was awarded the George Medal for her bravery. Yeah, rightly so. But there's more, Tara. Yeah? Yes, there is. There's yeah. more to this story. About three years later, on December 16th, 1976, Edwin Eastwood escaped from Geelong Prison. Edwin dug a tunnel underneath the wall with the help of another inmate. They escaped and stole a car. Soon after they separated, 
because he planned to do some more kidnapping because it worked so well the last time. Oh, yeah. When you're that good at something, it's kind of your civic duty to keep doing it. That's right, Tara. This time it would be the Allenby School in country Victoria. As a homage to his hero, gangster Al Capone, he set the date for the deed as the 14th of February, the day of Capone's Valentine's Day Massacre. Which is interesting because Valentine's Day is in July, I think. Well, for you it is. But his plan was foiled. When he arrived at the school, he found it empty. (laughs) They were on school camp. (laughs) (laughs) Good planning, genius. Not taking the hint, he drove on, finding the Warreen State School in South Gippsland the next day. Took him a whole day to find another school. Well, you know. Two months after his daring escape from Geelong Prison, on February 15th, 1977, Edwin Eastwood kidnapped another teacher, Robert Hunter, and nine students from the Warreen State School. I hope he had some awesome boots on. Well, I don't know about that, Tara, but it had been Robert Hunter's first ever teaching job. He'd only been there a couple of days. Oh, no. He's got classic uh, 70s teacher look too. Big beard, skivvy, shorts. Yeah, yeah. Short shorts, long beard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Waving a revolver in their faces, Edwin led them to a converted panel van and chained them up. He gagged the teacher, but not the kids. He would regret that. (laughs) I bet he would. Why were they all just like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I want to go to the toilet. I want to go to the dunny. <laughs> I want to use the iPad. I've got to drop a Grogan. <laughs> Shane keeps kicking me. Stop it, Shane. Wasting the opportunity again to use the blackboard, Edwin drove the hostages to Merbu North, where he posted a letter to a Melbourne City newspaper in Richmond. Oh, that'd take some time. It read, To the Minister of Education, via the editor of the Sunday Observer, Greetings, maggot. <laughs> I have kidnapped the teacher and pupils from the Allenby... Oh, no, he's crossed that out and writ Warreen State School because he didn't want to write another note. He just crossed it out and wrote it above it. Yeah, it probably took him ages to write it neatly and stuff the first time. Yeah, it's in capitals and it's quite neat. Yeah. If my demands and conditions are not met, the hostages will be... Shot out of a cannon into a shark's mouth. Well, they will be killed, but he didn't write the stuff about the sharks. But I do like that. Yeah, well, that's what you want to be. Like, that's how you want to go. Yeah. That's what you said. No, that's my funeral. My body oh. will be shot out of a cannon. I thought you were still alive when it happened. No, I'm well, dead. Well, you wouldn't be afterwards. So, yeah, if my demands and conditions are not met, the hostages will be killed. The note also demanded a ransom of $7 million, various guns, 100 kilos of pure Latin American cocaine, and 100 kilos of pure heroin, country of origin not stated. Jesus Christ, man. Oh, it, it, there's more on this list. <laughs> He also wrote down 17 inmates from Pentridge Prison that he wanted to be released. 17? 17. He's got 17 friends. I don't think I have 17 friends. No, you definitely don't. Me either. (laughs) Probably got 17 people who hate me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's conservative, but yeah. (laughs) He closed his note with the statement, In a world full of distractions, I am a person who would go to any length and sink to any depth to achieve success on a mission at hand. Or failure in his case. God, he's a grand, he always bastard, isn't he? He really is. Mm. Edwin took the back roads, which were winding and mountainous, which as it turned out was not such a great idea, Tara. <laughs> the children were threatened and told to keep out of sight. As Edwin sped through the heavily forested winding tracks, some of the children became car sick, complaining incessantly and then vomiting and wetting themselves. Yeah, it's not fun. No, no, that sounds like the trip we took to Bairnsdale several years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does, actually. <laughs> With your kids, obviously. Yeah, yeah. 
But the complaining of the children only strengthened Edwin's resolve and he drove faster, only to collide with a fully laden timber truck. Oh, God. The van bounced off the huge truck, then skidded before jamming against a post with the wheel over a perilous drop into a chasm below. Whoa. Did he stare into the abyss and shout into the inky blackness, well, this is a fucking stupid idea? <laughs> no. No. But if he did, the abyss would have said, yes, it fucking yeah. is. Instead, he took the truck driver and his partner hostage. Now, Edwin Eastwood had a problem. The van was fucked and was blocking the truck. He now had nine children and three men and no transport. Oh, God. Edwin began to pace, muttering, fuck, fuckity, fuckity, fuck, fuck, to himself. <laughs> sure he did. But 20 minutes later, another log truck came along and Edwin waved it to a stop before taking the driver and passenger hostage. So, Tara, now we have 14 people chained up and his only means of transport was a truck with a massive load of logs. It's like he's collecting people now. I know. So this was not going to work. No. Just as he was thinking about letting them go, two elderly women drove down the road in a Volkswagen combi van. Edwin probably said to himself, Fuck you, Abyss, I told you it'd work out. <laughs> Edwin drove away in a combi van with a grand total of 16 hostages crammed and chained up in the back. The scared kids and adults squashed in like sardines. What must have been going through their terrified brains, Tara? Where is he taking us? Is he going to kill us? I really need to fart. Oh, you just had to bring in farts. Well, you know, you're crammed together. Oh, got to hold it in. <laughs> After Edwin reached his carefully chosen hideaway at the mill track in the forest in East Gippsland, he handed out blankets and fed his hostages, but there were not enough sandwiches to go around, as he had not expected such a big turnout. Yeah, and also the kids would be like, Eh, tomato, I hate tomato. Just eat it. No, I yeah. want ice cream. You're going to have to share with this big burly truck driver you've never met. <laughs> no, you're the worst not my dad ever. You can't tell me what to do. You say that to me all the time. <laughs> That's true. Later that night, Edwin checked all their chains, told them a story, kissed each one on the forehead <laughs> and said his good nights. Now, do you promise not to try to escape? <laughs> but, and it's a big but, the next morning after counting his prisoners, he noticed one of the truckers had not kept his promise. Well, maybe he had his fingers crossed at the time. Well, he slipped his chains overnight and had made a break for it running eight kilometres to a farmhouse before notifying police. Edwin hurriedly bundled his remaining hostages into the combi and took off. He probably said to his remaining captives as they departed, I'm not angry with you, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> now on the open road, the combi van was quickly spotted by police who gave chase. The high-speed pursuit continued for several miles with an awesome song playing on the radio, probably. Yeah, and but also like a combi van full to the brim with people. Isn't yeah, going very I mean, fast? I've lost track. There's about 14 people in the back of this combi van um, now. I think, I think it's, yeah, about, about that, about 15 oh. all up, I think. Yeah. With the police pulling alongside the van and Edward refusing to pull over, the tyres were shot out by a police sharpshooter with a high-powered rifle. Wow, I don't think they'd do that today. No, they wouldn't. He could have crashed and killed them all. Yeah. Hmm. Edwin jumped out of the van and fired on a copper as he returned fire and shot him below the right knee, at which point he surrendered, though Edwin claimed he was shot after surrendering to police whilst unarmed. Mm, yeah, I don't know if I believe that. I'm getting better each time. I'll get it right eventually. 
Kidnapper Edwin Eastwood reportedly said after being caught for that second time in 1977. I'm not sure it was an improvement. I mean, he had more people. Maybe if it's if it's a numbers game, he's right. Well, yeah, lots of people. Yeah. He, you know, he didn't prepare enough sandwiches. But uh, well, if only he'd gotten those suitcases the first time around, he could have had a couple of suitcases full of sandwiches for them. Well, that's right. The children would later describe the frightening ride for newspapers, with one six-year-old telling media, "It was not a very good day. It gave me a headache." Oh. Edwin pleaded guilty to twenty-five charges, including sixteen counts of kidnapping three counts of theft of a motor vehicle, three counts of using a firearm with intent to avoid lawful apprehension, one count of escaping lawful custody... And several counts of having a really shit plan. <laughs> well, yeah, there's some burglary and some other theft charges too. But, oh. you know, oof. yeah, it was a pretty shit plan. <laughs> he was sentenced on November 8, 1977, to 21 years imprisonment with Justice Murray ordering that the sentence be served concurrently with the balance of the sentence from the Faraday kidnapping. Thus, the total effective sentence to be nearly 26 years. While in prison, Edwin found God, completed a religious course and was baptised by the Seventh-day Adventists. They must have been really, really proud of that score. Yeah. Prison authorities foiled a second escape bid by Edwin in 1979. Well, he wanted to go out and spread the word, you know, hand out some pamphlets, knock on some doors. Now, you're possibly wondering, Tara, uh, about a murder because there hasn't been one. Yeah, but I'm I'm really relieved as well because I was worried, like, that that one of the teachers or kids would die. Also, were any of them injured? No. Oh, that's wonderful. They're all fine. That is so wonderful. There's lots of photos which we'll put up um, of them smiling and and happy and stuff. When they finally got a sandwich that they liked. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So here's the rub. On April 30th, 1981, Edwin strangled convicted rapist Glenn Davies in the exercise yard of Pentridge Prison and was charged with murder. But he was subsequently acquitted on the grounds of self-defence, having been stabbed ten times during the fight. Ooh. So it's kind of a murder there. Well, I mean, yeah, I would, it would count it. It's like a self-defensey one, but it still counts. Yeah, so the show's not called Bloody Kidnapping. No, it's not. And and, and again. Oh, bloody annoyed children in yeah, the back of a band. Yeah, bloody, bloody unhappy kids. He was officially released in 1993 after choosing to decline parole offered in 1991. Well, it's like the opposite of escaping, isn't it? He did an unescape. <laughs> they said, no. you can go now. I said, no, nah, I'm staying here. Nah, I'm, I'm right, right where I am. I quite like it here. I have friends. <laughs> well, 17, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he got out in 1993, but Edwin was back inside three months later after a bungled factory burglary. Oh, God. His parole was revoked and he served another year. So he's out for a couple of years, and after reading one of Mark Chopper Reed's books, Edwin decided to pen his own epic masterpiece. Was it Hooky the Cripple? The book he read? Yeah. Probably. I don't know. One of his crime oh, books, right, Tara. Okay. Uh, his book... Uh, Edwin's book is called Focus on Faraday and Beyond, Australia's Crime of the Century, The Inside Story. Oh, you know, that's a bit grandiose, isn't it? Well, it is currently out of print. Ah, I wanted to get it on Amazon with that Canyon Sex book. I thought it would make a good double feature. (laughs) Edwin Eastwood now works as a truck driver. Oh, that's comforting. (laughs) And he changed his name to Jason Abercrombie. (laughs) Oh, that's where Jason is. Yeah. Australian writer Gabrielle Lord published a novel, Fortress, in 1980 that was loosely based on the events of the crime, although dramatic licence was taken and many fictional events were added for entertainment. 
Oh, yeah, like the, the high-speed chase with the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do and that interpretive dance competition. That wasn't in the original. Well, in this book, uh, they put him in a cave and they make it into a fortress. It's kind of like Wolf Creek versus... Um, it's kind of like Wolf Creek versus Lord of the Flies. But underground. But in an underground hat. <laughs> Under the sea. In 1985, a movie titled Fortress, based on the novel, was released, starring Rachel Ward as the teacher. The film has attained a cult status. And it's a cracker i got to tell you. Yeah? Um, I've actually got, um, I was looking on YouTube for it. I found one VHS rip of it with Romanian subtitles. Oh, wow. Well, that sounds that sounds like a nice way to watch anything. Yeah. But I did find the trailer for it, and I'm just going to play it because it's, it's pretty good. You've got 10 seconds to get that kid back, or I'm going to kill this one. Oh, one. <laughs> Yahoo! One phone call with nine kids. <laughs> they won't stall. The money will come floating from the bloody sky. The terrorists. The children. The teacher. Players in a deadly game of hide and seek. Get out of the car, boy! Stay where you are. I'm getting closer. Don't run away. <laughs> Becomes a fortress. The hunter becomes the hunted. Hell hath no fury like nine cornered kids. Did you enjoy that, Tara? very much i really i really loved that um that it was absurd and and no no innocent people got harmed that was really cool doesn't happen a lot around here oh i've got a question for you no what is aussie as aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially australian flavor would you like to hear one i would i don't know why i got such a toffee voice on when i'm well. describing what a bloody aussie as tales oh, no. of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially australian flavor right, right. right. Yeah. So uh, thanks to Holly Marie and Abby McNutt for posting about this one. Um, and I also think it might be a follow-up to one we did ages ago, but at this point I'm so confused I don't even know. 56-year-old Melbourne engineer David Hinkst recently sought $1.8 million in a lawsuit against his former employer, Construction Engineering. Davo claimed a colleague repeatedly farted near him and thrusted his bum at him. But a judge blasted the case out of the Supreme Court, finding that this was not bullying. Davo's appeal came before the Court of Appeals a week ago when he said flatulence was a form of bullying and his ex-manager Greg Short was a serial farter. He did it more than three times and on more than, more than two occasions. That's how you define it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, Greg Short, Shorty, nah, he's not a bully. He's just a bit of a larrikin. He likes to lighten things up around the office a bit with his bum. Right. <laughs> like you do, Barney. Oh, really? Like you yes. do. 
Uh, Good research, Tara. Davo said, oh, I'd be sitting with my face to the wall and he'd come into the room, which was small and had no windows, and he'd fart behind me and walk away. He'd do this like five or six <laughs> times a day. <laughs> Damo no. also said nice that man. Shorty had abused him over the phone and at times would taunt him with gestures. What kind of gestures do you think Shorty was into? Oh, you know, that dickhead one, you know, where you, do the thing that where you pretend to wank your unicorn horn. That's right. Yeah. What else do you reckon he had? Oh, well, rude fingers, maybe? Rude fingers, or yeah, that's what my kids call it, the rude finger. Yeah. I remember your son asking me, he was presenting his middle finger and the one next to the, the little finger. Oh, you and he's know, like, Tara, I can't, one, one of these is a rude finger, but I can't remember hand. which one. That's right. Yeah, well, that's why I told him the oh, truth. Well, I should have told him the wrong one. And he rude fingers. Been around, or, yeah, not rude that's what finger. my kids call it, the rude finger. Maybe he was like miming, farting, and blowing it at him like he was blowing a kiss. Oh, well, yeah, but boys have got to learn. Yeah. Also, don't get any ideas. You could all, you could also do that sex one where you make a little circle with one of your hands, fingers, and Maybe then he do was it. Like yeah. Miming, farting, and blowing it at him like he was blowing a kiss. Right. That would be obscene. Also, don't get any ideas. But the ju- but the appeals judges also heard that Davo had called Shorty Mister Stinky and sprayed deodorant at him on occasion. I mean, who do you believe? In any case, Justice Priest which is the name of my fourth band, it's a metal band, said farts were not the key issue in Davo's original claim as it had focused more on the phone calls. But Davo said that the flatulence had caused him severe and smelly stress and should still be taken into account. He claimed that Shorty's behaviour was part of a conspiracy to get rid of him and said that his time at construction engineering had caused him psychiatric injuries. Davo, who did a Ted Bundy and represented himself throughout the trial, is seeking leave to appeal on several grounds. He claims he didn't get a fair trial as he felt under pressure from pro-fart Supreme Court Judge Rita Zamet. Yeah, oh, Judge Zamet. Oh, no, she's pro-fart. Oh, those pro-fart judges. They've got to get rid of them. They're too old-fashioned. Some, some of them are anti-fart. I think a good balance. Um, but apparently he felt under pressure from her when questioning witnesses and he felt the judge was biased against him. But Justice Priest said the trial judge seemed to show remarkable latitude to Davo during the 18-day proceedings. 18 days. I think Justice Priest hates Davo too, by the way. Anyway, the Court of Appeal ruled against Davo last week, refusing to grant him leave to appeal and ordering him to pay the defendant's legal costs. In response, Davo vowed to take the case to the nation's top court and fight the powers that stink! Davo did not speak to reporters as he left court, with an item of clothing held over his mouth and face. See, he was damaged by this whole experience. He's shielding his face from ghost farts whenever he's in public now. Well, you got to do that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, come on, that scarred him a little bit. Now, I'm going to be keeping an eye on this case, because if Davo eventually wins, it means I might have a shot at successfully suing Barney over the same issue here. What? Stop thrusting your bum. I wonder if Shorty ever stared Davo square in the eye while letting rip with a long and epic one. Seriously, dude, some of your farts have a three-act structure. <laughs> Remember when you were just looking him in the eye and doing it? it well, like, you know. Ah. Well, thank you. Uh, it was, look, it uh, was a little bit, it was a little bit uh, awesome. 
it's nice to know you appreciate it, and um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's some good feedback. Thank yeah. you. No, I'll take that all on board. I, I, look, if I do take this to court, I hope I, I hope I'm not up against pro fat Supreme Court Judge Rita Zamet. Well, You'd yeah. want her to be there, though. Well, that's right. <laughs> Get her on my ticket. <laughs> She'd love to work with you. Ah, oh, that was good. Insulting, but good. <laughs> <laughs> you like it. It's if I give you a compliment that you freak out. That's why I'm so mean to people. Just uh, think I'm mean to you, and like, and you're like crying. Oh no, I do like it. When I give, yeah, when I give him compliments, he freaks out, and he's like, Bleh! like I called him cute the other day, and he nearly fucking punched me. <laughs> well, not exactly, but you know what I mean. Now this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time out to write us some good reviews. So thank you so much, Kitty Mayhem. Oh. Crawr. We've got Alan Hoffensberger. <laughs> and Brandy Tolbert. And Gemma Astley. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And you know who bought the drinks this week? Who? Jennifer Pattinson. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah. I have to go to work, though. I'm not allowed to have... I'll save you some. Yeah, what, in your mouth? Yeah. We'd also like to thank our Facebook group moderator team. You're doing great work. They certainly are. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow us on our Facebook page and group on Twitter at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram at bloody underscore murder underscore podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and our fabulous merchandise. You know, tote bags, backpacks, shoes, T-shirts, mugs. We've got some pretty cool stuff there. Yeah, there's, there's also there's a hell of a lot of it. Yeah, there's stickers and uh, doona covers. Uh, sex swings. <laughs> <laughs> really? Are there things. sex swings? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You cool. can also get like a Duna cover with my face on it if you're completely fucked in the head. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're not trying to encourage people to listen oh. to us at this point. <laughs> oh, it's good. We love we all we love you. Thank you. Uh. We love you so much that we're mean to you. <laughs> That's what true friends do. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, Tara, remember we were talking the other week about the word grok? Grok. No, grok is uh, it's from Strangers in a Strange Land. And it's made its way into the English language, which is an old sci-fi novel. Yeah, so, but it sounds like a grok of shit, doesn't it? No, well, if I grok you, it means I'm not intuitively know you. Uh, yeah, but it doesn't sound good. I don't know if I want to... I want to get grokked with you. No, like, I grok oh, you. No. That's not me. That's not me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hang on. This is one of those nerdlinger things, isn't it? That it's you and your girlfriend it, talk about. Well, it's made it onto the internet and it means something else, but people don't know the origin of it, that it came from the strangers in the strange Is land. that because it's boring? Well, no, it's interesting. Grok. But then we were talking about the word grogan. They had, they had the intercom on in the room and they kept lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997 how that's uh, uh, a New Zealand thing for poo. Yeah, I believe I'm going to so. go and drop a grogan off. Yeah. Mate, then I'm going to have some bin. fush and chips. Oh, oh grogan. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was more Scottish. Oh, grogan yeah. in my chili oh, bun. Who grogan did my chili bun? <laughs> uh, 
But no, that is really a, a euphemism for poo. And then we're, then we're just saying, I grok your grogan. <laughs> I grok your grogan so hard. I grok your grogan so hard. Uh, everything goes wrong when it comes out of my mouth. Yeah. Oh, grok and roll ain't noise. Why are you rubbing your nipples? I know, it freaks you out. They're like little diamonds. Yeah, they Blood are. diamonds. No, They're illegal. Yeah, they certainly are. <laughs> I'm hanging up my my headphones. All right. Hello, I'm Barney Black. My name's Barney. Hey, baby. My blood blue. I'm a guy. Hi, my name's Tara and I'm a girl. <laughs> oh, my name's Barney and I'm a hipster that rides a penny farthing bicycle while waxing my moustache. Please tell me the mics are on. Yeah, they are. Are we recording? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. I don't yeah. want to waste this gold. Oh, my name's Tara and I'm fucking swear all the time. Cunt, cunt, cut, Cunt, cunt, cut. And I interrupt men all the time. And oh, my period's so hard. <laughs> oh, hey, baby. My name's Barney. I really like Lego. Isn't that cool? <laughs> oh, God. I really do sound like that. <laughs> It was like listening to a mirror, wasn't it? Like listening to a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> a sexy mirror. Oh, hey, baby. Hey, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the sexiest Barney in the room? Still not you. <laughs> Dean Groover likes his. <laughs> Dean Groover loves mirrors. Like he carries one with him wherever he goes. Well, yeah, when I look at myself when I'm storing up all that cocaine. <laughs> uh, Paul Gall's in the background just trying to organise a Paul, murder. Pogo. Paul Gall. Pogo. Paul Gall. Pogo? Pogo. Do you like my gigantic, magnificent $8 I just killed my husband hat? Yes. It's pretty nice, isn't it? It's pretty good. Yeah, you have to kill your husband to get one, though. Yeah. And you can smuggle toddlers across state lines or small monkeys. Uh, I'm more of a monkey. More yeah, of a yeah. monkey person, really. <laughs> You're really a monkey person. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like that picture that we put up of us today to say yeah. the episode was going to be late, and and it's um there are orangutans, and one of them has lipstick on, and the other one's got glasses on, and he's yeah. he's doing smoke rings with a cigarette. Do you think Do you think orangutans hate gingers as well? They couldn't. Well, that's right. Self-loathing orangutans. Oh no. <gasps> that's why they drink. That's why they drink. Uh-huh. Mm. That's why they podcast, Barney. Is there a podcast that's about gingers for gingers? <laughs> yeah, no one listens to it, though. Oh, what about the other gingers? No, nah, they don't like being gingers, too. No, right, they're in denial. No, no, no one likes gingers, including gingers. Oh, wow, that's harsh. Nick uh, Johnson's going to cry. Uh, no, I like gingers. Actually, actually you, 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 your Barney Trouser Snake exclusively feeds on gingers. Oh, I wouldn't put it that way. I just I... really not romantic enough for you. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not that's not my opening line. Let me just say that. Really, no. hey baby, hey baby, you my trousers steaks feet on gingers. <laughs> no, that's exclusively. not going to exclusively. No, that does not work. Gingers from Australia and around the globe. <laughs> <laughs> You're like the Statue of Liberty, but for gingers. Give me your gingers, your gingers, and your other gingers. <laughs> <laughs> All three of them. Uh, yeah. I do, I do like redheaded women. Yeah. Um, to, to tell you the truth, I've dated all kinds of women in my life. Yeah, some of them are um, just made I'm, of cardboard and masking I'm tape. I'm not superficial. Some of them are imaginary. Yeah, you're not superficial. You're average official. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what? Oh, uh, you look really cute when you pissed at me. Really? Oh, no. Yeah, he hates it when I call him cute. He hates it so much. Uh, it makes me really happy. 
because I'm basically rub my head. nipples in frustration. Oh god, he is. He is just one though. Just well, he's I'm just doing a, the the righty. I'm holding a piece of paper in the other. Your hand. left nip feels a little bit like you know ignored. But if I start talking first, how am I going to interrupt you and annoy people? I'm sure. Start, you're... There we go. Sorry, what were you going to say? <laughs> I said. Start, I'm, no, I'm, I'm sure Spangler. you'll find a way. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, being nominated for some awards—that's going to make people who think I'm the most annoying person on earth even more annoyed. They're going to be like really? when you throw a bucket of water on a witch and steam comes out their ears, and they go, "I'm mad." <laughs> I, I hate that some people think I'm internet famous. Or famous of some in some way. I want to be rich, money famous. Yeah, yeah, rich, not famous. Or influence famous. You want to be an influencer? Do you want to have like a line of um, uh, blusher available at Sephora? Well, when I'm when I'm at the sausage shop, I could I could will people to buy me sausages. <laughs> you think that's Ooh. what an influencer does? You could be like, hey, baby, uh, I'll put on some shorty jorts, some little shorty short jorts, and um, I'll, I'll like um, Instagram about eating these sausages, and then I'll like tag you in the post, yeah. and our 1,600 followers will think that's good, and they'll want the sausages and the geordie jorts. Well, well, there's been a bit of a, an event lately. Uh, my doctor has said no more sausages, or cut down on the sausages. Really? Cut down? Yeah. Well, how many sausages were you eating? Oh, well, you know, it's it's rude to keep count. <laughs> rude to who? The sausage. <laughs> they care, do they? Well, you can't say one sausage is more important than the last sausage. I've never thought very deeply about it, and no. I'm just going to take your word for it. The green-eyed monster, it's a problem with sausages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mum. <clears throat> I recently ate a sausage that was very jealous of you because of our podcasting and I our a, friendship. I had a bad sausage last week, actually. It was an Irish sausage. An Irish sausage. Yeah. How was it Irish? Well, Would it that... have a little green hat on? Yeah. <laughs> Did you find it like at the end of the rainbow? No, it was called an Irish pork sausage and it was just a little bit too fatty. Yeah, no, I look at those and go, yeah, nah. Yeah, no, nah, not my thing. And drink some of this stuff. Ever heard of it? It's called water. You drink it and you bathe in it. Two things I never see you do. Although it would be weird if I saw you bathe. Just like I sketch you while you bathe. <laughs> You know what's been bothering me lately? That my cat likes to stare at me while I shower. You don't find it comforting? I don't. I find it really creepy. I says, get out. Stop looking at me. Uh, if I if I don't like actually properly shut the door, Poppy will come into the toilet when I'm in there. And she I'll, wants to hang out. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I think they just want to be with us all yeah. the time. Though, you know, I was drying my hair and I took the towel <laughs> that off. That would have taken a while. Well, <laughs> shut up. I've got hair. <laughs> And I took my towel. Oh, your body hair. No. Oh, my- that would have taken ages. Uh, I, I took my towel off, so I was drying my hair, you know, giving it a bit of a how's your father, mm-hmm. drying it. And I was nude, mm-hmm. obviously, because I took my Everyone, towel off. Everyone, make sure you take I'm- the time to picture this. And while I'm, and while I'm shaking, and while I'm, I'm giving my hair a good- You're shaking it like a Polaroid picture. I, I'm, I'm tussling with my hair with the towel, giving it a good shake. Uh-huh. My body's shaking a little bit, obviously, too. Mm-hmm. So my nether regions are- Shaking and 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 Laszlo's looking at my my junk and he, and he's looked at it like I'm going to scratch that. Oh, I'm going to attack your shaky junk, mofo. Yeah, that's right. And, and I, did he? No, he didn't because I quickly put the towel back around myself. <laughs> you went no more sexy dancing in front of the cat. Why are you crying? <laughs> that's right. Cut off jorts. Collots. Oh, cut off collots. Oh, I'm worried about next summer now. You know that could be a thing. Cut off collots, man. That'd be a lot of ball poppage going on there. Oh, it's always a lot of ball poppage when it comes to you 
What? What? I don't. I don't even know. No, that's the wrong held, way. I can't be held responsible for this shit that comes out of my mouth. Well, who is? Robert Spangler, <laughs> Paul Gole, and Dean Groover. It's a conspiracy. No. Not sexy Barney though. No, Yowies. Yowies are <laughs> definitely involved. <laughs> hey, baby, it's not my fault. Does podcasting make you itchy? Oh yes. Mm, yeah, me no. too. Gives me itchy arms. Itchy for oh the itchy forearms of a podcaster. <laughs> we all talk about it. Wow. I know. I was talking to Mr. Casewell about it the other day. Was he? Yeah, he was, was like, he God, you're good at podcasting, Tara. Yeah. And I was like, Do your forearms get itchy, Mr. Casewell? And he went, Oh, you know, they do. <laughs> <laughs> and then we hugged and then we had some beer. And then he said, Would you ever consider making a podcast with me and getting rid of that Barney guy? <laughs> <laughs> and I went, No, Mr. Casewell, stop it. It's not, we're not friends. No, Casey. <laughs> Stop it, Casey. Yeah. That's just being rude. <laughs> but isn't it really sexy when women talk like <laughs> I think I answered my own question. No, the answer's no. <laughs> you know, there's meant to be like that, oh, ask you for a sexy lady thing. Like that. I'm not turning uh, you no, on. It just sounds like you've been chain smoking and, and drinking too many Chardonnays. That sounds good to me right now. Yeah, it does sound good, doesn't it? Yeah, so if we try really hard and work really hard and get the episode recorded, can I go to work afterwards and you can do some editing? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. I love the reward system we have in place today. And I've got to call Case File and tell him I'm I'm itchy again. I regret my ass jokes, the Tara Sarabin story. I've read that book. (laughs) Don't you mean I bask in my anal humour, the Tara Sarabin story? Anally retentive from go to woe. He also toiled, 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 toiled in the fields. <laughs> he also toiled in the fields for potatoes. That's true. Oh, red sand is not a lubricant. The best way to do canyon sex. <laughs> I get paid per word for the title in my book, so I'm going to make it be really fucking long. Canyon sex. Canyon sex. Red sand. Uh-uh. <laughs> red sand? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, you don't want that in your junk. <laughs> now do it as Mandy Patimkin. Red sand in your junk. Oh, no. Oh, red sand in my junk. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> Mandy Patimkin is not into it. He was, And he was never married to uh, Glenn Close. No, Because their names got mixed up when they checked into hotels. <laughs> Well, oh, yeah. here's your keys, Mr. Close. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not Mr. Close. <laughs> I know I have a bit of a girl's name, but my wife, she's, she is Mrs. Close. Mrs. Close. Miss Close, she likes to be called. Mrs. Or Glenn. It sounded nothing like Manny Patimkin. It sounded like oh, it sounded like if Oscar the Grouch was an axolotl, <laughs> and he was doing an impersonation. My trash can's underwater, <laughs> but I can go on land as well. <laughs> See, <laughs> I like to eat grasshoppers. They're crunchy and delicious. The red sand works underwater. (laughs) Underwater. Red sand underwater. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. (laughs) Hey, baby, I'm starting to feel it. Can you pass me that bucket of red sand? (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, well, uh, when sexy Barney's in the house, the ladies need sandbags in their panties, don't they? Oh, uh, that's right. I'm so ashamed for that whole sentence. Uh, I like to hear it. Mm. It had to actually come out of my fucking mouth, though. No, uh, well, that's not a good sentence, too. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get past the axolotl and uh, out of my mouth. Uh, I'm very confused now. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I think I should just give up. <laughs> anyway, it's available on Amazon. <laughs> Red Sand? Oh, hell no. It's available on Amazon. Canyon Sex. <laughs> Red Sand? Hell no. Canyon Sex. Available on Amazon. <laughs> So, yeah, you can get a copy of that on Amazon. <laughs> I think I just spat on my pop card. Oh, well, that's right. what it's for. <clears throat> Unfortunately for people who love books about red sand. <laughs> well, now you've lost it, haven't you? Yeah. This is, um, it's it's going to be the highlight of my day. It's only going to go downhill from Well, me. you know, once you've had canyon sex, you just can't have any. You just can't, you just can't have normal forest sex. Or beach, or beach sex is kind of like canyon sex, I guess. But you can't have house sex. I can't have sex unless I'm in a submarine these days. It oh, has really? to be international waters. Well, yeah, I mean, for legal purposes. Well, I mean, the shit I'm into, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, axolotls. Not legal everywhere. Okay. I guess I have to get it together so I can go to work later. See, that's not a fucking... That, that doesn't sweeten the... I better get it together and stop laughing so I can go to work later. After Donna's death in the Grand Canyon... <laughs> <laughs> After Donna's death from Canyon Sex. Yeah. Hell no. After a friction related death from Canyon <laughs> Sex. Friction related? Oh. Ooh. Oh. Hell no. No. Uh-uh. no. He got together with investigators from the US Department of Interior, National Park Service, and counties of Coconino, Arizona, and Arapaho, and they linked the cold case homicides in their restrictive jurisdiction. I think you said Arizona. I've never heard of that state. I probably had. Arizona, Jamaica. <laughs> oh, I want to take you. Meanwhile, teacher Mary Grib- Gribbs. <laughs> Hello, Mary Gribbs. <laughs> hey, baby, Mary Gribbs. <laughs> I love you, Mary Gribbs. Shane keeps kicking me. Stop it, Shane. Your mum's a slut. <laughs> your mum's a slut. <laughs> too much. And your dad's gay. Too much or not enough. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. I was trying like, to see if you were listening to me. <laughs> yeah, your mum's a slut. Podcasting history. We're making it. Oh, no. The van bounced off the huge truck, then skidded before jamming against a post, which the then skidded before jamming against a post with a wheel over a perilous... Hey, baby, it's perilous. Drop low me. It's a chasm. It's a chasm. Oh, no, baby, look out for the chasm. Oh, man, I'm up for some canyon sex in this chasm. Hey, baby. Oh, the red dirt. Though Edwin claimed that he was shot after surrendering to police whilst unarmed. Wow, that's a very interesting <laughs> way you, you're doing that. That's uh, Keep it up. I liked it. I thought it was fresh and new. <laughs> <laughs> I think I ran out of something. <laughs> I think we ran out of that I ran, out of, I ran out of Red Canyon dust. <laughs> oh, Give me more. I can get you some more. Read this book. It's all about it. With Justice Murray ordering that 
with Justice Martyring. I don't know what the verdict was. I couldn't understand. That's a pretty shitty plan. I'm not Mr. Close. No, Miss. Did you just say I'm not? I'm not Mr. Close. Did you? I did. Red sound everywhere. Red sound everywhere. I love Mr. Close. It's a Glenn Close. It's just a woman. I'm a man. My name's Mandy, and I'm a man. Where's that bucket of red sand? Get on the friction here. So Justice Murray. <laughs> With Justice Murray ordering that he... I'm not Mr. Cross. Oh, no, my face hurts. <laughs> Mine too. Oh. But truth be told, it hurt coming in. <laughs> ah. On April 30th, 1981, Edwin strangled convicted rapist Glenn Davies in the exercise yard of prison Prentridge. <laughs> oh, prison Pentridge in he was. <laughs> he was officially... In a letterbox under the sea. He was officially... There, letterbox <laughs> under the sea. Red sand. I'm not Mr. Claus. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm broken. Think you, you broke Barney. Oh, I didn't take that much. <laughs> In 1980, Foovy. Uh, <laughs> 1980, Foovy? That was a good year. Oh, yes. It was a Twan's Day in 1980, Foovy. <laughs> when I realised. That I was becoming Miss, Mr. Close. <laughs> well, I was becoming Mr. Close. There was not enough red sand to go around. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, why aren't we drunk? We sound drunk. Um, hey, business, Tara, how's it going? I do not believe that's appropriate language for the workforce. Neither is your T-shirt. I believe profanity is not allowed in the workplace. I'm the head of HR. I don't like going to the Fair Work Commission. And yet you're always there. I do not care for this conversation for it bores me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 